Good morning. The writer G.K. Chesterton observed, the Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. What we're looking at today may be the hardest thing to believe in all of Christianity. There are people um, who really, not easily, but quite happily believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he walked on water, that he healed the sick, that he rose from the dead. They don't have a problem with any of those things, but they really struggle to believe what we're going to look at today. There are some passages of the Bible which are just, to be honest, incredibly complicated. You need expert level uh, knowledge in languages and in history and in theology and all these kind of things. And and even those people who are the most trained that you could have in the whole world will look at some passages and say, honestly, we're not quite sure what it means. Because it's just slightly beyond us for some reason or other. That's not our problem today. It's not our problem. If anything, what we're going to read is almost too simple. It is so plain that you can't get out of the way of it. You can't find levels of complication uh, to add to it so that it eventually means something else that you would rather it meant than what it clearly means. And it comes directly from the mouth of Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you know, you can't really argue with him. Here's what he says. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You've heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay. This is going to be a difficult subject this morning for most of us, because we don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. There are lots of other people I could tell you to love. You'd be like, yes, I agree, amen. And this one would say, hey, we're going to love our enemies. Can I get an amen? You're like, no, not really. You haven't met the people I work with. Uh, You haven't uh, seen the people who are in my family. You haven't experienced the things I've been in. Most of us just don't want to do this at all. I'm also aware that for some of you, all joking aside, you've suffered terribly at the hands of other people. Things that they have done to you they shouldn't have done, that were wrong, that were evil. And for us to talk about loving our enemies is going to bring back memories uh, that are painful for you. Uh, It's going to stir up emotions that are difficult for you to deal with. And I just want to say I'm, I'm aware of that. I've got really, you know, 45 minutes or so to show you some of the things that God says in his word. I know that's not going to be anywhere near enough for you to be able to start to move in the direction that Jesus wants to take you. Uh, but I, I want to help show you this morning what that direction is. Part of the point of being in a community uh, like this church is that 
we walk together with one another and we help one another in this. And, and that's why maybe you're visiting today and you just think, I, he's going to say some things. I, I think maybe I should try that. I don't know how. Well, come and be part of us. Come and join one of our small groups. Get to know some people and learn how to walk in the ways that Jesus wants us to walk. Uh, these things can take time, uh, but it's true. And actually, it's the best thing for you. And so I want to encourage you, if this is you, this is really hard for you, well, hang on in there and let God do his work in you over time. Even if you live like we do in a land where uh, there isn't technically a war going on, uh, or even kind of like a war going on, there's still plenty of conflict. It's easy to have enemies. It's easy to become someone else's enemies. You can even do it by accident sometimes. Our media knows that conflict appeals to us. You might think, why do newspapers and websites always put the bad stories at the top? Because we read them more when they do that. That's why. Because that's what we want to read about. That's what we uh, enjoy, it seems, in some way. That's why all our dramas are about strife and, well, drama. Um, it's why most of our forms of entertainment have to have a sense of opposition and competition within them. You know, it's very few of our entertainment is like, hey, we all just got along and that was great, the end. Even like the nicest shows, like how can you, how can you make baking you know, competitive? Oh, it's really easy. <laughs> we have to do this. We might lament it. We might think, oh, it's so sad how everyone seems to be arguing all the time. It is, isn't it? But you're good at that too. Left to your own devices, literally your own device. You may well find loads of people to argue with and enemies to have. In our families, in our workplaces, this is just... What happens? There's clearly a wide range of things that we mean by this when we talk about our enemies. There'll be people who are a temporary annoyance, all the way to the people who, who threaten your life or the, or the lives of others. Most of us live within that range. Most of us, if we're honest, live at this end of that range. Some of you have experienced the other extreme. We might prefer a less dramatic word than enemy. You might think, I don't have any enemies. Like, well, I bet I've got some people who we could point out who you feel strongly about and then not in a good way. It wasn't any different when Jesus climbed a mountain and began to teach the crowds who followed him about God's ways, who God was and what he was like. It's a fair bet uh, that they didn't form an orderly queue to climb up the mountain. Uh, they will have jostled one another. They will have bumped into one another. They may have even tripped up one another. They all wanted to be really close to him, you see. And, and the trouble with wanting to be really close to someone is that other people have to get out of your way. That would have happened as they climbed up the mountain. There would have been tradesmen and tax collectors who had ripped each other off in the past and they would suddenly be much closer to each other than they really wanted to be. Maybe there were family members who hadn't spoken for years, suddenly glimpsed one another across the mountainside. There would have been sincere believers who disagreed strongly on important religious issues and now Jesus was starting to talk about them and they could feel their heckles raising even as he did. And distant from the mountain, there would have been the site of a Roman fortress, which would have reminded the Jewish people that they were under the ha hand of an enemy power. And I think those first people who heard Jesus teach what we've just read will have had very similar questions, the kind of questions that we've got today. And so I want us to look at three of them. Why should we love our enemies? Why does Jesus tell us to do this? And then, out of that, how do we do that? And then from that, what will it look like to love our enemies? Why don't we pray? I think we probably feel aware of our need for it. 
Jesus, you spoke really clearly into really complicated lives. We thank you. We're so grateful that you have enough for us today. Jesus, you said these things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. Lord, please would you give us your great power. Please would you give us your great grace today that we might do what you call us to do. Lord, I don't know the circumstances of each person in this room, but you do. Lord, I don't know what they've suffered and what they found frustrating, but you do. Please, Lord, with your great knowledge and your great love, would you be amongst us this morning? Help us to hear you, believe you, and obey you. For your glory. Amen. Amen. All right, why should we love our enemies? Well, let's start with a really important definition. Let's define what we mean by love. Hey, I think we need to be clear on that point. Because most of us think of love as a nice feeling that we have in reaction to someone or something else. So someone does something, or someone looks in a certain way, or someone says something to us, and we enjoy that experience, and we say, wow, I love that. I love you. And that's what we think of as love. It's, it's, it's a reactive thing. Uh, it's a very emotional thing. People often talk about you can't help it. It just happens, or it doesn't happen. Uh, it just suddenly arrives, or it just disappears. What can you do about it? Well, that's not actually really what the Bible often means when it talks about love. Because what we often seem to do is confuse loving with liking. See, I think what we often talk about in these things is, I really like that. I really like you. I, really, I, I have positive feelings about what you look like or what you've said or what you've done or what this product achieves for me uh, or, or what this job involves or what that view looks like. I like that positive feeling from, from that thing to me and I say, I love it. But the Bible, when it talks about love, goes a lot deeper. Because love is a settled decision to do someone good however you currently feel about them. You might find someone really difficult even when they're trying to be really nice. And you think, well, can I love them? And the Bible says, yes, you can. You can love them. You can work for their good. You can Offer yourself to them. That's what the Bible means usually when it talks about love. And I mean, I don't feel like I've redefined that in such a way that makes you think, oh, fine, I can do that now. That's not the point at all. You're still going to need God's power for this. But I hope you understand that when we say love our enemies, what we don't mean is say that our enemies do lovely things. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what Jesus said. He called them evil. You saw that in the passage. So let's be really clear on what we mean by this. Because God wants us to love people who are utterly unlovely. Well, why should we even try to do this? Why should we not just try and get on with the people who are, you know, who are okay like us? Well, we could give all sorts of good sociological arguments for that, and there's plenty of those, but Jesus goes somewhere a lot deeper. He goes right to the ultimate truth, because he isn't giving good advice for a better life. That's not what the Bible's about. The Bible's about God. And Jesus is showing us here what God is like. He says, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
So Jesus is saying, this is what the world is actually meant to be like because this is what God is like. I'm not giving you five tips to succeed in your work tomorrow. I'm not giving you five ways in which other people at school will like you. Jesus is saying, this is what God's like. And so we need to live that way. And Jesus draws attention to what theologians call common grace. And this is God's goodness that's just given out to everyone, really. It's just common to all of us. God doesn't only give sun and rain to those who deserve it. There aren't pockets of clouds and pockets of sunshine and other people who aren't experiencing that weather. We all experience the weather. God gives it to all of his creatures because he is overflowingly generous. It's not, well, the world needs to exist in a certain way, and so God's like, well, I better do that. No, no, God loves to bless people. He loves to bless all people. Jesus' stories often repeat this point about the nature of God. Um, He tells a story about a man who owed his master millions, and the master just wipes the debt out. The guy says, I can't pay. The master says, all right. There's another story where there's a son who has basically said to his father, he wishes his father was dead. Could he have his inheritance, please? And then he goes and wastes his inheritance. And then he comes back. And what does the father do? He says, well, you are going to have to earn this, my son. No, no. He runs to him. Throws his arms around him. His son can't even apologize before his father's forgiven him. This is the nature of God. He is love. He love, and love isn't a static thing and it's not a responsive thing. It is an outflowing of God's nature. The love that the Father has for the Son, the love that the Son has for the Spirit, the love that the Spirit has for the Father and the Son that has existed forever pours out of God into us. God does not have a limited amount of love to give. If he did, he'd need to carefully assign it. Then it would be fair enough. It's like, well, okay, I've only, got, I've only got this much love, so I'm going to need to find the people who I can give this to. Uh, so you're certainly not getting any of it. Not you. Oh, you can have some. I've only got some. I've got to be careful. When I lived down south um, in the summer, there would often be talk of a hosepipe ban. And essentially what a hosepipe ban is, um, is, uh, you can't, is water can only be used for good causes. And your lawn is not a good cause, and your car is not a good cause, uh, and water fights are not good causes. You know, drinking is a good cause. And we're worried that the water's going to run out, and so we have to put a ban in place. Well, um, that never happens up here, does it? (laughs) Do you know why? Because we have an abundance. Have an abundance of God's gift of rain. (laughs) Isn't he good to us? Everyone can be blessed with it. God's love is a never-ending fountain of love that pours out onto all people. And this is the funny thing about common grace. It's so common that we take it for granted. Yeah, on balance, many of us here would feel like Scotland gets almost too blessed with rain. Like, to be honest, God, you've given us more than we need. And we never thank him for it because we're never worried that it's going to run out. But actually, common grace is God just saying, this is what I'm like. I am abundantly generous. I love to give my love. And so he does. And he does it to all. And you probably somewhere in you, even if it's hidden under British politeness, are starting to feel a sense of injustice. Because why does God allow people who do evil to eat and drink, to sleep, to breathe? Why does he let this happen? 
Jesus wasn't an idealist. He wasn't naive. He wasn't some kind of dreamer who'd never experienced real life. And so he says, oh, you should love your enemies. He's like, have you got any enemies? If you had enemies, you know that's, you can't possibly want to do that. Jesus had enemies. When Jesus was born, the ruling king tried to have him killed. When he began to teach and do good, the religious authorities hated him. One of his closest followers betrayed him and the Roman Empire executed him. And all the way through, he loved them. All the way through, he gave them his goodness. He gave them his truth. He spoke to them. Now, he gets angry, right enough. See, some people who have comfortable lives think that anger and love are contradictory. You're like, well, if you say you're loving, you can't really be angry. You're like, well, clearly no one has ever done anything evil to someone you love. Because when that happens, you get angry. And you're right to get angry at things being done that are wrong. Things that are being done that are evil should provoke a, an emotional response in someone who loves. God loves and Jesus loves. And in Matthew 23, basically the whole chapter is Jesus just blasting at the scribes and Pharisees because they're hypocrites and they're full of hate. And Jesus is like, this is wrong what you're doing. And it makes me absolutely mad that you do it. So to love our enemies is not to pretend that they are okay. It is not to pretend that what they do is okay. God's not like that. No one is more aware of right and wrong, of good and evil than God is. He isn't like, oh, I just love how you abused that person. It was so nice. I love how you just kind of put yourself first. It was really cute. I love. God's not like that. He hates these things more than you hate these things. Jesus does also say there is an end point. There is an end point at which God will punish those who have rejected him. Those who have spent their whole life rejecting him. And that's where Jesus gets to at the end of Matthew 23. And it's like his anger is almost being poured out and spent out. But even as he does this, and he's speaking to the very people who are going to kill him. And, and the very people who actually he has spent eternity as God being rebelled against by them. Here's what he says in Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. The people Jesus loved killed them. And he knows he's next. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus describes himself as a mother hen wanting to care for those who stone the prophets and who are going to kill him. This is what God's like. Why does God allow this period of common grace to go on for so long? Why does he allow people to have such a long piece of rope? Well, 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So that's why. It's because he loves and it's because he wants people to turn to him. That's why he gives them the chance. And this is what he's like. And we should be grateful beyond words that this is what he's like. Because second question, how can we love our enemies? Well, the most important thing that Jesus gives us in order that we can is the truth about our own situation and how he reacted to that. Jesus 
goes to the cross. He suffers shame. He suffers degradation. Uh, he su suffers violence. He suffers the horror of the cross. It is the worst thing that's ever happened to the best person who has ever lived. Why does this happen? Why this violence? Why this horror? Why this terror of the cross? Why does it have to happen? Because you and I were in such deep trouble that nothing less than this could save us. The risk of celebrating God's love, and we do that as a church, we love singing about God's love. We were amazed by it. We think, God, you love me. That's amazing. The danger of that is that we start to think that the reason he loved us is because we're lovely. And I've got news for you. You're not. And you know that really. Most of you know that really. No, God loves us because he is loving. He loves those who ignore him. He loves those who mock him. He loves those who reject him, who use his name as a joke. He loves those who think of themselves before others. He loves those who hurt others. He loves those who break what is good and build what is bad. Because he is loving. Not because they or you are lovely. It's different. But to do any of those things, and each of us have the things that we do that God hates, to do any of these things is to rebel against him. It's to go against him. It's to no longer be on his side. It's to say, I don't want to be in your kingdom. I don't want to be in your family. And, and that's, that's enemy talk. That's enemy talk with people who we know, let alone with God. To do these things, that are against who he is and against his will, is to put yourself right in the line of fire of the greatest power in the universe and to throw things at him and to mock him. This is the state of every person. This is what we do automatically. We don't have to be taught how to do this. It just comes very, very naturally to us. God hates what we've done, and rightly so. And you know he's right because you hate it when you see it in others. We're all wretched. We're all in desperate trouble. We all have a debt we cannot pay. There is anger stored up against us that if it comes towards us, will kill us. So what does God do? What does he do with all his justice, which he feels more keenly than you do? What does he do with all his power, which is all the power there is? Romans 5, verses 6 to 10 says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, he says, You who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who you were. That's who I was. He has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We were weak, we were sinners, we were objects of wrath, we were enemies, we were alienated, we were hostile, we were doing evil and he loved us and he gave his son to die for us. If you're a Christian, this is your story. Now you'll know the details, you know the particular things that you did 
Uh, you know the things that God in his mercy spared you from doing by grabbing hold of your life sooner and preventing you from doing some of those things. But really, it's the same story for each of us. And the more you're aware of this story, the more you're celebrating it, the more it's your song at the start of every morning, the more it's, it's what you think about last thing as you go to bed at night, the more you read about it, the more you pray with one another about it, the more you realize you're an enemy who God loved, the more you realize you're a sinner he had mercy on, the harder it becomes to want to see justice done to others. And it doesn't really seem to have been done to you. It is God's love in you, this gift. This isn't just, here are some things, some truths to understand. This is the, the, this is the nature of our story. This is what he has done for us and is now doing in us. This is the love of God that gets to work in us. It wasn't just to wipe the slate clean when you became a Christian. You put your trust in Jesus and he, he forgives all your sins because he took the punishment for them on the cross. And you can think, great, done, new start. Well, it is. But it is a new start that is now animated by this new love. And in which the more and more you turn yourself over to it and ask God to work it in you, the more and more you experience it and it grows in you and it changes you. It's God's love in you that enables you to love. Now when you're struggling to deal with a careless action of someone else that's hurt you or an unfair, um, you know, accusation, maybe there's a move in the culture that's going on and you, you hate it and you just feel anger towards those who are doing it because it, you don't like it and you see the negative effects it has on other people. It can be hard to think this way. It can be hard to think this way when evil is being done to you. You know, we sing a song here called Unstoppable God and it has the line, impossible things in your name they shall be done. And we often think about miracles at that point, and rightly so, because God wants to do impossible things like miracles. I think he has this in his mind a lot more than we realize. Possible things, they shall be done like loving your enemies, because the love of God has come to you and is at work in you. So how do we begin to learn to love our enemies? Well, it has to start with realizing that we were God's enemy and he has loved us and that love is now at work in us. And the peace that we now have with God, we're not striving to prove ourselves anymore or at least we needn't be. And so much of hate and dislocation and, and opposition comes because we're just desperate to get ahead. We fear others because they might expose who we really are. Well, Christians don't need to worry about that. We've been fully exposed and God still loved us. And uh, we're not trying to impress anyone because we're completely unimpressive. And Jesus is very impressive and that will do. And all these things work in us and it just makes it easier somehow. Another reason just to say to, to love our enemies is their innocence. Which sounds contradictory. Uh, sounds ridiculous. <coughs> just bear me out. There were Roman soldiers hammering nails into Jesus. And he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And you think, well, they, they, they knew what a nail was, they knew what a hammer was, they knew what a person's flesh was. They knew what they were doing. But Jesus says they don't know what they're doing. 
The prophet Jonah was sent to a city called Nineveh, which is famous for its evil, reveled in its evil. Had just, it was a horrible, horrible place. And Jonah hates it that God's sending him there because they're his enemies. And God says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? God's saying, I know they're famous for their cruelty. They have no idea. It's really interesting. Paul tells the Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And by that he means people. Now Paul has been imprisoned by this point. He's been stoned by this point. He's going to get killed eventually. So you think, well, Jesus, uh, Paul, quite a lot of flesh and blood seems to be wrestling against you. Paul says, nope. Don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's Paul's perspective on what's going on when enemies are attacking him. The people who cause us problems and make us suffer don't know what they're doing. Now, they're not really innocent. They're guilty of the things that they do but they are just pawns in a far greater conflict. And they don't know it. But if you're a Christian, I'm I'm telling you, this is what it's like. This is what it is. They are not your real enemy. For Christians to see other people as their enemies is for us to miss the real target, which is the evil spiritual forces that are at work in the world against God and against his people. Now, there may be a very specific person who's, who is the means by which that's happening to you. But they're not the full story. And it helps us to bear that in mind. So thirdly and finally then, what does loving our enemies look like? I've tried to just really impress upon you the love of God. I've tried to impress upon you the, the story that you're in if you're a Christian. So what should this look like? How should it express itself in your love, in your life? And as I say... Whoever you're thinking of when I say this, just put them there and you may know them. They may not know you at all. Uh, but if you think you know, those kind of things about them, that's who they are. Well, the first way that we love our enemies is that we love them. And the second way that we love them is by blessing them. And the third way Jesus gives us is to pray for them. This is what Jesus tells us to do. He, he, says, love, he says love them, doesn't he? He explicitly said that. He says love your enemies. And you can spin it as much as you want, but what he means is love your enemies. He says pray for them. Uh, in the reading that we said, and he also gives the example of God blessing them. So that's why I'm, I'm not just a nice person who thinks these are some nice things to do. This is Jesus telling us. So we love them. Love is actually, I think it actually can be quite a hard thing to describe, particularly this kind of love, and it can be easier to point to it. And so you think, well, what does it look like to love my enemy? Well, do you know what? God gave you a really, really, really good example. And so we look to the cross and we look to Jesus. And, and, and that is, it's, it's not just a, an example to inspire us, it's, it's the reality of the universe. This is what God's like. And so we say, Lord, help me to be like that. I really need your help with that, but help me to be like that. Here's another picture of it for us. And you can often find Christians who have taken hold of this in their lives. And Martin Luther King was one of those. He was preaching during the campaign for civil rights in America. And this is what he said. He said, To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, 
and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. That is relentless love. That is, I'm gonna, you can do anything to me, I'm going to love you. And if you're there, you can't actually beat that. Because you, you want to get them changed. And, and he's saying, you just can't do that to me. And, and the danger of using someone like, someone famous like Martin Luther King, is you just think, well, that was him. What a saint. And he would say, it was my saviour who enabled me to do that. The difference is he, just, he believed God and he asked God for the grace. And he went through such hardship to do it, but he got there. It was the power of God at work in him. In your notes for small groups this week, I've also included a story of forgiveness from Corrie ten Boom. And she, she describes the, the internal process of going through a moment of extremely difficult forgiveness. And I'd love you to talk about that because that will help you. This is the end point, what we've just read. This will help work you through the process so you can work it out for yourselves. But this is what relentless love looks like. We can make sure that we're always the first to de-escalate tension. Proverbs 15, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So choose your words lovingly, which may involve not saying anything. It may involve walking out of the room. Paul, I love Paul's realism. I think the Bible's like, oh, it's all dreamy stuff. Listen to this. Um, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul's saying this thing doesn't work. You can't make the other person be better. You can't make the other person live differently, but you're responsible for you. And God's going to give you power to do that part of it. So as much as it's possible, your side of it, live peaceably with all. Loving unconditionally frees us from bitterness because our attitude towards others doesn't depend on them asking us to forgive them. Now, forgiveness is a whole issue which we're not even going to talk about this morning, but the, the love, it, just doesn't, it doesn't actually require it. I'm still going to want your good. I'm still going to pray for you. I'm still going to try and bless you. And we make the first move, and even if they don't respond, we still love them. I was really aware when I was preparing this. I was like, man, this just makes love sound a bit like being a punch bag. I hope we've begin, begun to see, I hope God's giving you faith that there's much more going on than that. Because there's something about how the love of God absorbs the blow that shatters the hand that deals it. So we love them. We're to bless them. And by blessing, we mean not just, I'll bless you, run off. I mean practical actions that will do them good. <laughs> You're getting really real now, aren't you? Like, really? That's what Jesus said. Jesus gives us God's example of giving us the sun and the rain, the essentials of life. Paul picks this up in his letter to the Roman Christians. Uh, they lived in a city where they were looked on as weird at best, traitors at worst. It was difficult for them. So Paul says to them in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Oh, again, 
Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. <laughs> this is the interesting bit. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is how rugged the love of God is. This is how strong the love of God is. He doesn't not care about evil deeds. He will punish them. Either he has punished them in his son's death on the cross, or he will punish them on judgment day. But he's going to do it. Either way, it's in God's hands. And our job is therefore to do good and to keep doing good and to return curses with blessing. You're like, that person cursed me. Well, but I was really clear what you should do. That person did evil to me. But I was really clear what you should do. And this can be hard enough with family members and colleagues, can't it? It can be hard enough with people we do quite get on with sometimes. Well, we need to find out how we can do them good. And we need to take the initiative in doing that. Just to be really clear, if you or someone else you know is being harmed by someone else, you need to remove yourself or them from that situation and you need to get the relevant authorities involved in that situation. That might be a work process, uh, it might be uh, a legal process, uh, it might be just community working together, but it isn't loving by allowing someone to continue to harm you or allowing them to continue to harm someone else because we want to rescue them from doing that. We want, so there is a getting out that is legitimate and that is right. And we can do these things. We can call the police whilst loving the person who has caused the problem. And even that is blessing them because we are wanting to do them good. The final thing we can do is we can pray for them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy. We stand by his side and we plead for him to God. We are doing vicariously for them what they cannot do for themselves. It might be hard to bless an enemy to their face. It may, in fact, be impossible for all sorts of reasons, some of which maybe you don't even know them. But you can pray for them. And you can pray to God knowing that God can cope with whatever you give him. You can weep, you can shout, you can present your case, you can demand justice, he can cope with it. But one of the things we do in prayer is we put things into God's hands and we leave them there. And he speaks to us and he may give us words of comfort, he may give us words of his love for us and he may challenge us to admit and repent of our parts of wrongdoing if there are any. And he certainly will ask us to forgive as we've been forgiven. Again, remember what I said right at the beginning. That may take a long time, but that's the direction we're heading in. I want to get to a point in my praying where I'm praying for God's mercy. If you want one word, uh, how, to, if you like, how do I deal with this enemy? All these thoughts come in my head. Everything goes around. I don't know what to say. You can just ask God to have mercy on them. Sometimes, that's, I, Lord, I can't pray anything else. I don't understand how to express anything else, but would you have mercy on them, which means don't do what they deserve because that's what he did to me. Prayer isn't just about getting things changed. It's about being changed. 
And that's really what this whole uh, morning has been about. This is how we're ending. This is what Jesus wants to try to do to us and for us. To the proudly self-righteous. He wants you to realize what a terrible state you were in. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, he wants you to realize what a terrible state you are in. Because you've made yourself an enemy of God. To the hurt, he wants you to realize He wants you to realize that he understands what you're going through better than anyone else does. And he is right there. And he is close. And he does love you and he does know and he does care. And to the weak and bewildered. And when we hear Jesus say, love our enemies, I think we all feel weak and bewildered. To us he says that he wants to offer his divine power so that we can do this. If you've been forgiven you are able to forgive. If you are loved, you're able to love. It's the reality of the Christian life. We might feel like we're not quite there yet, but the great news is God wants to take us there yet. He wants to take us there. So why don't we ask him now to do that? Jesus, thank you so much. You never said... I'm offering you an easy life. You never said, I'm going to do exactly what you asked me to do. Instead, you offer us what seems impossible. You command us to do what seems impossible. And then you give us the grace to do it. You share your love with us. How we need it, Lord. How we need it. Oh God, give us what we need, which is your love. Lord, it just, it just seems impossible to us. But with you, all things are possible. Lord, wherever we're at today, however many enemies we feel we have, however we feel conflicted by what's going on in the world around us, this morning, however it whips up these feelings of tension and anxiety and anger and hatred, oh God, would you work your balm of love in us, that we might love those around us, that we might bless our enemies, and that we would pray for them, and that we, in doing this, Lord God, would be like you. The only way we can be like you is if you make us like you. Please, oh God, would you do that?